0: let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture tells us that uh, if we sin, if there is iniquity in our heart, if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. Anytime we sin, we violate the perfect righteousness of God. We don't lose our salvation but it does affect our moment-by-moment walk with the Lord by placing us out of fellowship, and we lose the filling of the Spirit. And since we learn and understand and apply doctrine under the filling of the Spirit, we have to be in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, to advance in the spiritual life. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer before we begin to make sure that we are indeed fellowship, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, so that we can prepare to worship through the study of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the privilege to come together as a body of believers to worship you freely in this nation. That we still have these precious freedoms, that we can study your word, that we are still free to teach it clearly, despite the fact that it runs counter to many of the prevailing opinions and politically correct thought today. And Father, we pray that we might continue to have these freedoms in our nation, that we may advance. In our spiritual life, and have the freedom to worship You. Father, we pray now as we study Your Word, You would help us to understand these things, that we would be challenged by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1, and we continue our study in this remarkable book of the Old Testament that is so rarely studied. Now, we have seen, just by way of review, that the problem in Israel at this time, and throughout this period, this approximately 300-350 year period, is that the nation rejects divine authority, which leads to moral collapse and national disintegration. The key verse is found at the end of the book in Judges twenty one twenty is also found in Judges chapter Uh, 17, verse 6, "...in those days there was no king in Israel." That statement, as we have seen, is both an an allusion to the fact that, that there was not yet a human king in Israel at this particular time, but also that the nation had rejected the divine kingship. The nation was set up under a theocracy. God is the head. He was the executive branch of government. And, uh, the government was supposed to be carried out through the bureaucracy of the priesthood and through judges that God would raise up. And because the people rejected the authority of God and put themselves in their own as the final and ultimate authority and the, uh, the ultimate ones to decide what was right and what was wrong, they collapsed into moral relativism, which led to the disintegration and collapse of the nation. John. My pages are going wild. Would you turn that down a little bit, please? Can't keep, can't teach if I have to hold my one hand on one page of the Bible to keep it from flipping. The second thing we have seen is that God recognized this need for authority and leadership, and He provided the basis for it in Deuteronomy. He established a hierarchy of, of authority, and this is always God's procedure in Human relationships. God is the ultimate executive authority in Israel. Underneath God was the law. Law does not come from the people up, as it does in a relativistic society, in which is what Israel trying to do in their in their um, structure. It comes down from God. This is why Samuel Rutherford wrote a very powerful tract back in the. 17th century called Lex Rex that the law is king that's what the title means it's a Latin title the law is king the king does not derive his authority uh, or the law does not have its authority from the king but the king is under the law so that everyone including the king is under the authority of law and that is because law comes from God so you have God law and then the judges and this was outlined in Deuteronomy 16:18 through 17:13, And even in chapter 17, there is a provision for the future kingship in Israel. Because Israel was disobedient to God, they jumped the gun, they got Saul, in order to teach them the kinds of problems they could have with the king before God gave them the king that he had always intended, which was David from the tribe of Judah. One reason we know that, is because Saul, Saul was never intended to be the head of any dynasty in Israel because he was not from the tribe of Judah. The prophecy in uh, Genesis was that the scepter would never depart from the tribe of Judah, that the king that God designed for Israel would come from the line of Judah, which is ultimately found in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. One thing we learn from that is... From uh, We saw in our analysis of Deuteronomy 17 is that the king was required to read the law, to make a copy of the law, and to read it on a daily basis. And this emphasizes the fact that that the ultimate authority for any judicial system, for any political system, must derive from God. And when that absolute base is cut loose from a nation, then it's set adrift on a sea of relativism, And that leads to the internal collapse of the nation. And so judges will portray for us what happened in Israel and also what is happening in our own nation. At the conclusion of last time, we saw the outline of this particular book. There are three sections to it. And it's important to get this into your minds, to think your way through. There's two things that are going to be different for us One is understanding this, and in order to get past these differences, we have to understand the outline, and we have to understand some things about the nature of Hebrew narrative and Hebrew history. It's not like uh, the way Western Europeans developed the writing of, of history. And if you try to read biblical history and biblical books from the frame of reference of Western European standards developed many centuries later, then you'll end up both confused... And doubting the authority of Scripture, but we'll get to that in a minute. The outline: there's three sections. One, one to three six is the introduction. Three seven to sixteen thirty one is the main body of the book, where we go through uh, eight different cycles or seven different judges that are going to be uh, emphasized. There cycles of uh, deliverance and disobedience and discipline, and then deliverance again, and then disobedience and discipline. And then there is, in the last four chapters, there are two appendices which uh, emphasize how uh, horrible the situation was in Israel and how, how everything had deteriorated into pure paganism. The introduction will review and summarize the entire history for us and outline these cycles of deliverance The main section shows the breakdown of the leadership of the nation and shows that when the people's value system is has deteriorated, it affects the leadership as well. The leaders come out from the culture as a whole. They are not distinct from the culture as a whole. So that when we have leaders and we look at them and we see their value system, we see their morals, we see their uh, character They are often a mirror of the culture as a whole. And then the last four chapters show how the spiritual values of the people have completely broken down. The theme of Judges is the rejection of divine authority and the consequent paganization. What I mean by paganization is that they have adopted the... uh, Pagan principles. Pagan is a term to describe any anyone, no matter how wonderful they are, no matter how kind and generous, no matter how uh, how much uh, human virtue or integrity they might have, no matter how conservative they might be, no matter how liberal they might be. It describes someone whose thought systems is not based, whose thought systems are not based on the scriptures. That's what paganization is, and we are going to see how it, what its symptoms are in this book. So the theme is the rejection of divine authority and the consequent paganization of the nation Israel. When a culture is paganized, we will see that it assimilates pagan principles, policies, philosophies, politics, political theory, and procedures and that is so important procedures are methodology procedures are how you do what you do and so often people think that methodology is somehow neutral that it doesn't really matter how we do what we do as long as what we want to do is the right thing but that's all called the end justifies the means it is important not it is as important how you do what you do what your procedures are as it is the ultimate goal. And so we will see that Israel adopts pagan principles, policies, philosophies, politics, and procedures, and that paganizes the culture so that by the end of the book, they really don't look any different from the culture, the Canaanite culture that surrounds them, that they, had, they failed to remove from the land. Now, the point of this, in terms of application, for us as church-age believers, is that this is a, uh, uh, it, this portrays the principles of warfare. And we know that as believers we are in spiritual warfare. It is our task to uh, have victory over thought processes in our lives. We are to take captive every thought for Jesus Christ. And so I it, it opened up last time by explaining that we need to look at this uh, in terms of as Israel's going into the land in terms of a new believer looking at your mind and your thinking in the same way Israel looked at the land. God had given them the land. It was theirs. God had promised it to them. This was theirs by right. He gives them the title deed, but it is their responsibility to take control of the land, just as it is the believer's responsibility to look at his, his mind, which is the basis for living life. Everything we think determines what we are. And so it is our task to go in and to root out every single aspect of human viewpoint thinking, every single false concept in our mind, so that we can think as God thinks about life around us. And that is a phenomenal task, and we can only do it if we have absolutes, if we have the Word of God. So we come to the first verse in Judges, which locates us in time. We read it came now. It came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of Yahweh, saying, "Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them?" Now, as we get into this chapter, we need to deal with a couple of introductory matters to begin with. And the first thing we need to look at is the fact that there are some apparent contradictions between Judges 1 and the events in Joshua. If you examine events in Joshua 14 and 15, it looks as if uh, that those events took place before the death of Joshua. And yet we have this temporal marker in the first phrase of 1.1 saying it came about after the death of Joshua, that the events of this chapter take place after Joshua died. Now, back in the 19th century, back in the 19th century, there was developed a, a theory, an approach to um, the Old Testament that was really based on viewing the Old Testament, interpreting the Old Testament on the basis of modern concepts of how you, of writing, modern concepts of history, and of course, undergirding all of that was an evolutionary theory of the development of religion, that God, of course, could not uh, speak directly to man. That was their presupposition, that God never encountered man or never interfered into human history, and so that the Bible was not a revelation from God to man, but was simply a record of man's uh, experiences with what that man called God. And so starting from that presupposition, an anti-supernatural presupposition, some European scholars developed a theory. They looked at the Bible and they said, well, it really wasn't written by Moses. Joshua wasn't written by Joshua. This really reflects some some, uh, the theology that was developed much later. No one could have had this kind of theology as early as 1400, 1500 uh, B.C., now, one of the reasons I want to mention this, I don't get too many opportunities to go into this, but no one ever, I never heard this taught or explained when I was growing up. First class I went to in college, Western civilization, the, the prof, uh, just nailed us with this theory. And I had never heard this before, and so it's always important for you parents to be a little bit aware of some of the things that your kids are going to encounter so that you can prepare them ahead of time. Back in the early part of the 19th century, there was a guy by the name of Wellhausen, another guy by the name of Graf, a couple of Germans, and they started taking out their razor blades and going after Scripture. And they came up with a theory that's called the J-E-D-P theory. And what that basically means is that there were four different people who wrote the Bible. We don't know who they were. The first guy had a preference for using Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, Remember, they're German, so in German uh, the J is pronounced like a Y, so they would use the J. So this guy comes along and he writes certain sections. Then you had another guy, and his preferred name for God was Elohim. So they call him uh, Elohim, the Elohim writer, and he writes a few things. And then there's a, a third guy that comes along somewhere after David, and he's concerned about the priestly ritual and all of this stuff. So he writes most most of the stuff in, in Leviticus and a few other things, and he's the priestly writer. And then down around the um, uh, uh, 8th century, 7th century B.C., when they have the revival under Josiah, they say that's when you had the guy who wrote Deuteronomy come up, and he's concerned about developing a a more stable monotheistic religion, so he writes Deuteronomy. What happens is then you get an editor that comes along and starts pulling these things together, and that's how you get the beginning parts of the Bible. And they always make issues out of what appears to them to be uh, contradictions in the text. But one of the interesting things is that, that two scholars, two Jewish scholars, they're not Christians, they don't hold to a view of inerrancy and infallibility like we do. They are just sound Middle Eastern Jewish scholars. One of them is, uh, the name is Dr. Umberto Casuto, and he wrote a book. This, this theory is called The Documentary Hypothesis. And he wrote a scathing critique back in the 50s that has never been answered by the liberal critics. They, that's how liberal critics handle problems is they ignore them. If you can't answer your your critic, then you just ignore them and hope they'll go away. Uh, Casuto wrote a devastating critique for this. And another of his colleagues, uh, Dr. Kaufman, Yehizakal Kaufman from the Hebrew University, uh, has written against this as well. I want you to listen to what Kaufman says because it gives us an understanding of how Hebrew history, Jewish history, is written in the Old Testament. So scholars, and he's talking about liberal scholars, Scholars follow the well-trodden paths and continue the tradition, that is, of, of debunking the Mosaic authorship of Scripture. They base their examination of the biblical text on the rules of Latin composition. Notice that. They start from the assumption that the true and original text must be consistent, and if it is not consistent, it must be corrected by scissors and paste work. The biblical storyteller must have had a schema. He must keep a sequence. This is their assumption, their presupposition. He is not allowed to repeat himself. He is forbidden to retrace his steps and so on. Scholars discover everywhere duplications, contradictions, derangements of sequence, and they amend. According to them, the text has been tampered with by the first, second, and third hands of redactors and expanders, most of whom were complete fools or debauchers. It does not occur to the scholars that the biblical author wrote in an entirely different way and not according to the schema of a Latin composition. So they're, from their starting point, because they don't understand the nature of Hebrew narrative, they immediately assume their contradictions. One of the places you'll always see this come up, you'll get in a discussion with somebody and they'll say, well, aren't there two different conflicting accounts of, of creation? There's the Genesis 1 account and the Genesis 2 account. But see the nature of Hebrew poetry, our uh, Hebrew narrative, is number one to write first a summary statement, and you'll have a summary, and then the writer will come back afterwards. After he's given the summary of the the whole overview, he'll come back and fill in the details. And we see something of that in the first chapter of Judges. Judges gives us a survey, a summary of what happens throughout this entire period, even down into the second chapter we see this summary of everything that happens and there's some events that happen in Judges 2 that will not take place until the very end of this period of time. But if you read Judges 1 and 2 from our, our typical Western frame of reference, you'll, you'll be all messed up in terms of, uh, of sequence and chronology because you're thinking like a Western European that everything's got to be written in terms of chronological sequence. But the Jews write from a logical sequence, so that they, they write, if, if they were to write American history, they were to start off at, let's say, at the time of the American War for Independence and the writing of the Constitution, they might take one particular um, uh, amendment, like, let's say the Second Amendment, and instead of just dealing with it in terms of the original situation in the 1790s, they would trace out logically all of the implications and how that was treated throughout uh, American history up to the present, and then they would come back and deal with another subject. So it's written topically and logically so that you hear the whole story on one subject at one time and not just giving um, sort of chronological information that doesn't really have a a unifying theme or, or where you're able to tie it together. So history for the Jew is written more logically than it is chronologically so that you, you're not left hanging. You get to see what the end results are before you, um, before you get started. Now, when the, the liberal comes to Judges 1, they immediately say that there are some, some contradictions between judges. Well, there are some differences, and we have to understand how to handle those differences. If you compare Joshua and the battles in Joshua, Joshua is the general and all twelve tribes are united. They cross the river Jordan. All the tribes do battle against Joshua, do battle against Ai, do, go down and, and do battle in the south and then up in the north. It's a national effort. But when you come to Judges 1, it's a tribal effort. So if you compare uh, uh, Joshua... Uh, with Judges, in Joshua you only have one major war with various campaigns, whereas in Judges 1, it's broken down into a series of battles and it's not viewed as one total war. Second, if you compare Joshua with Judges 1, you'll see that Joshua portrays more of an idealized or a perfect war that is very organized and successful. Yet in Judges, you don't have that type of perfect organized warfare. In fact, it's it's very negative. And the further you get into Judges one, the more negative the comments become. It's it's a the warfare is is piecemeal. It's disorganized. And so liberals say, well, they're they're both telling the same story. Well, they don't understand that there's a, there is a difference in terms of the way you approach the narrative. The third thing is that in Judges 1, you have the nation, the tribes, fighting separately. Look down at verses 9 through 12. Verse 9, Afterward, after the events of verse 8, Afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now notice this. In this in this chapter, it is just the tribe of Judah that is going against the Canaanites in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, and they struck Sheshai, Ahimon, Talmai. We'll come back and look at that in a minute. Go down then in verse 11. Then from there he went against the inhabitants of Debir. Now, the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. So you see that it is one tribe going against these these um, these this these Canaanite cities. Now, hold your place there and turn back to Joshua chapter 14. Look at Joshua chapter 14. Joshua fourteen six. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, The Kenizzite said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. Now, let's get a little background on this so that you can understand. One of the hardest things about teaching through a chapter like Judges 1 or some of these things in Joshua is that most people are biblically illiterate. They don't know Kadesh Barnea from Kiriath Sefer, they don't know Caleb from Joshua, from Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3. And so you have to take some time and and go over this. This is because I find that many believers today either are afraid to or don't take the time or don't realize that it should be a high priority in their life to read the Bible on a daily basis. You're reminded. Sure, you're going to run across verses that you don't understand. Sure, you're going to run across some things that perhaps aren't a great translation. but, But you're going to be reminded of many great promises that are in the Scriptures. And you're going to be able to use them. The first stage in the faith rest drill is to mix faith with the faith with the promises of God. If you don't know what the promises, then you won't know what to believe. So you can't even begin the faith rest drill if you don't know promises. And that's why the psalmist says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We have to not only know doctrinal principles, but we have to know what the word says precisely. This is why so many Christians get all twisted up in, in witnessing situations is because somebody quotes something and they don't know the scriptures to answer them or it's misquoted and they don't know the Bible well enough to be able to handle the argument so since they feel defeated they just don't witness they don't want to get engaged in a discussion with somebody and so it is a priority for every believer to study the Bible just so you know who the main players are and what the main, main events are now this verse refers back to the events when the The tribes of Israel came out of, left Sinai and came to the edge of the promised land the first time at Kadesh Barnea, just outside the southern boundary of Israel, and the spies were sent into the land, one from each tribe. Among those twelve spies, you have Joshua and Caleb. The spies went into the land and they came back and they said, Well, the people are numerous, there are giants in the land, the sons of Anak, the Anakim, and we'll see reference to them in Judges 1. These giants are in the land, and they have fortified cities. There's no way we can, we can take it. We, we don't have enough people. We don't have the kind of military uh, weapons. We don't have what we need to, to defeat these, these cities. But only Joshua and Caleb said, we don't need to worry about strategy tactics. We don't need to worry about what kinds of engines of war we have. God is for us. Who can be against us? Let's go get them. So God's discipline on the nation was that no one except for Joshua and Caleb were under over the age of 20 were allowed to enter into the land and that's what Caleb is referring to here is that they are old men by this time they're in their 90s and they are referring back to the time when God had promised them to give them the land and he says to he they meet at Gilgal now Gilgal becomes a critical place in the history of the nation now Gilgal is located. I'm going to see if I can find it here on the map. Gilgal is located up in this general area, north of uh, north of Jericho, right in this area right here if I can draw there, we'll draw a little circle there. Gilgal is located in about that area, and this becomes a central meeting spot. In fact, we're going to be back at Gilgal at the beginning of Judges chapter 2. This is where the whole nation, they've conquered, they've gone through the land, they've they've crossed the Jordan, they've come to Jericho, they've come up and they've uh, wiped out Ai and burned it. They have consolidated part of the southern area, they've gone north into the northern area, and they've Conquered and the major powers up in the north, and now they gather at Gilgal in order to divide up the, the land and to consolidate the gains that they've already acquired. So the sons of Judah draw near to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite says, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God concerning you and me, and Kadesh Barnea. So at this point, Joshua and Caleb are both alive. Now turn over to the next chapter. Joshua 15, look at verse 3 and 4. Uh, 13 and 14, excuse me. Now he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah according to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak. Remember, I mentioned the, the giants, the Anakim. This is their descent from Arba. Now, verse thirteen describes Joshua giving the land to to um, uh, Caleb. Say, Caleb, this is your land. God's promised it to you. This is your title deed. Now, if you read into verse fourteen, and Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, it looks like the events of verse fourteen immediately follow the events of verse thirteen. But in verse thirteen, Joshua is alive, and if fourteen follows thirteen, then Caleb drives out and takes possession of Debir and Hebron when Joshua is still alive. But Judges tells us that it is after Joshua dies. See the apparent contradiction? Well, see, the writer of Joshua is not writing chronologically. He is writing logically. First, he tells us that Caleb goes to Joshua and gets the rights to the land, and then he tells us what the ultimate result was, so he doesn't leave this hanging. In Paul Harvey's words, he gives us the rest of the story right up front. He's not giving us chronological history there, so that is why there is no contradiction. There are four reasons why Joshua and Judges are recording Uh, two different periods of time rather than conflicting accounts of the same period of time. First of all, Judges 1.1 says that the book of Judges follows the book of Joshua. It is after the death of Joshua. So that's our first evidence. Secondly, in Judges 1.1 we're told that the sons of Israel, this is a technical term for the entire nation, the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord. This is not a procedure followed in the book of Joshua at all. So there is a new procedure for seeking the will of God. And Joshua, the people went to Joshua, and God spoke to Joshua. Here they must go through the priest. It's probably uh, the use of the Urim and the Thummim, which were two different stones on the high priest's garment. Which were used to—they either glowed, yes or no, or something. We're not sure how they operated, but it was a means by which they could seek the will of God. Third, Joshua one one says, "Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites?" So we see here that there is a certain uh, a theme here of the individual tribes going in and removing the remaining pockets of. Canaanite resistance in their areas. So each tribe would then go to their area, and there were still pockets of Canaanite resistance, and they would have to uh, take them out in order to secure their domain. So it's a different type of fighting than what we find in Joshua. And then the fourth point of why there is a distinction is in Judges 1-3, where Judah... Now, here we see Judah and Simeon have been dead, by the way, for about uh, 800 or more years. These were uh, two of the sons of, uh, of Jacob, the heads of the tribe. So their tribe is called by the name of the founding individual. Uh, there is no Judah or Simeon alive. This is just the name of the tribe. So the tribe of Judah says to the tribe of Simeon, Come up with me into the territory allotted me. So here we see them taking out individual uh, portions of their inheritance in order to de- have it divided up and to begin to settle in the land. So we conclude from this that Judges 1 is not talking about the same period of time as the book of Joshua. And Judges 1, three presupposes that the tribe of Judah has already... Received its allotment of land from the major war that has already been fought. So, first there's the war that secures the major area, and then there is the mopping up operation. Well, let's get into the text here and see what is going on. In this first section, from 1 1 to 3 6, where we have the introduction to this entire book, the main theme of this is Israel's failure in the Holy War. God has told the nation, His mandate was to go into the land and to completely annihilate the Canaanites, to wipe out everyone, man, woman, and child. Now, immediately that runs counter to modern concepts of uh, of warfare, and you never involve the women or the children and not only did God say to wipe out all the women and children, but He also said in some cases to wipe out their cattle, their sheep, uh, everything. He did not want the Jews to be dependent in any way, shape, or form on a pagan culture. God was going to demonstrate that He was completely sufficient for everything in the nation Israel. They did not need to borrow anything from a pagan culture. They didn't need to get their cattle, their sheep, or anything God would provide completely for Israel. Yet, they failed to trust Him, and the result was national discipline and national disaster. So, these first three chapters, or at least down through three six, are going to summarize the historical events, events of the entire period of the Judges. We're going to see the basic trends of history that go through this period. Chapter 1 will summarize Israel's military response to the problem of Canaanite possession of the land. And what we will see here is that they, they decide to become comfortable and to just settle down and coexist with the Canaanites. And that's typical of most believers I think every Christian, at the moment you are saved or within the first two or three years of your Christian life, you, may, you decide what your ceiling is in terms of spiritual growth. Uh, I find that to be true. Just it may not be true in every case. Every now and then somebody, when they're a little older, gets, uh, comes under enough severe divine discipline, they realize they better reevaluate their decision. But at some point early on in your Christian life, you decide just how committed you are, how positive you are, and how far you really want to grow in the Christian life. You decide what your priorities are. And so what happens is you decide that maybe you'll just take out the major pockets of human viewpoint in your thinking, but gosh, we don't want to seem like we're, we're too enthusiastic or we're radicals or, or uh, that somebody might think we're fanatics for, for goodness sake. We don't want anybody to think we're a fanatic for doctrine. So, so let's not get too concerned. Let's just make sure we, we adopt the major uh, moral spiritual principles and not get too committed and trying to, let's say, uh, work out a biblical, uh, biblically consistent theory of science or mathematics or art or music or anything like that. Let's just uh, let's just deal with the basic issues of, of, of the faith and not not get too carried away with these things. But that's not the picture that the Bible portrays. And the result is that once you reach that level of compromise where you're willing to coexist with a certain level of false. Thinking In your mind, and that's what human viewpoint is, then that eventually will be your downfall, and it may take another 15 or 20 years before that human viewpoint works itself out, but that will destroy your spiritual growth eventually. God calls for people to be fully committed. That's why Joshua said at the end of this book, at the end of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. Choose you this day who you will Follow. Are you really committed? Do you really want to go all the way to spiritual, spiritual maturity? Or do you just want to make sure that, that your basic problems in life are somehow solved and you can somehow uh, get that taken care of and that God will come along like a magical Santa Claus and uh, deal with your problems here and there whenever you have them? And that's how, unfortunately, that's how many people approach the Christian life. It's not a lifestyle. See, doctrine is a lifestyle. That's why you need to be in Bible class every time we have it. It's not just because I like to see a lot of people here. It's not just because it's a good thing to do and it keeps you off the streets and out of trouble. It's because that's the only way we can engage the process of completely renovating our thinking. And especially those of you who are parents, it is your responsibility to then be communicating these principles to your children day in and day out in the home. On a moment, And if you can't learn it, if you haven't had your thinking renovated by being here in Bible class two or three times a week and then listening to tapes over and over again so it gets into your soul so you can't forget it, how are you going to in turn fulfill your biblical responsibility to communicate that to your children? This is, this is a lifestyle commitment. That's why I stress positive volition. The trouble is that most people get so distracted with all the details of life that Bible doctrine takes second place or third place. And if Bible doctrine takes second place or third place, then I'm telling you, you are just as much a failure in your spiritual life as the Israelites are in the period of the judges. So we're going to see a lot of of emphasis in this first chapter on what happens with incomplete obedience, partial trust, and the eventual failure and defeat that comes from that. Chapter 2, chapter 1, is it's almost a chronicle. It gives a lot of events, but there are three interesting anecdotes in here we'll have to evaluate. Chapter 2 then comes along and gives the theological and spiritual interpretation of what happens in chapter 1. So this is the basic outline of what takes place, emphasizing why Israel is ultimately a failure in the holy war to take possession of the land. Today, Lord willing, we'll make our way through the first chapter. The first two verses give us the time and the setting for the beginning of the period of the judges. came about after the death of Joshua. So it's following the death of Joshua. The tribes come together, all the tribes to inquire of the Lord, and they say, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? Now, a couple of things we need to note. In terms of um, exegesis, first of all, they say, "Who shall go up?" And this is a an imperfect tense in the Hebrew. Hebrew only has two tenses: perfect and imperfect, and they don't function at all like the perfect or imperfect tense in English. In the cal the, in the uh, Hebrew, the cal imperfect is used to express a future time, sometime. And so the writer here says. Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites? And here it uses the word Allah, A-L-A-H, which doesn't, does mean to go up, but in military context it is a technical term for attack. They're not simply saying who's going to walk up a hill. It said who is going to attack the Canaanites first to fight against them. And the Lord says, Judah, Judah is the first one, behold, I have given the land into his hand. And here we have the cow perfect of the Hebrew word Natan, N-A-T-A-N. And Natan is roughly equivalent to the Greek word Didomi. Ditto is the basic verb meaning to give or to grant. And every time you see this verb with God as the subject, the first thing that ought to come into our minds is grace. It's all grace. God is the one who has already given us everything. He has already given the land to Judah. It says, Judah shall go up, behold, Notice the shift in tense. It's a perfect tense indicating past action. I have given the land into his hand. It is his by right. He has the title deed. The issue now, is Judah going to exercise, is the tribe going to exercise their volition to be completely obedient and do it my way or their way? Remember, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Only a right thing done in a right way is right. And so what we're going to see is Judah beginning. We're going to see the foreshadowing in these first events of Judah already compromising divine procedure to accomplish the goal. They're going to say, well, I think I have a little better way of doing it. And the result is going to be catastrophic. The emphasis in these first two verses is that God has already provided everything that is necessary for us in the spiritual life. God gave us a, all of the spiritual assets we need, at the, we need at the instant of salvation. He's given us all the information we need in the completed canon of Scripture. It's, already ours. Sanctification is ours positionally. Now it is our task to go after it experientially, and that means we have to learn God's policies, God's procedures, and we have to learn to think as God would have us to think. So the next verses from 3 through 20 are going to outline for us the successes and failures of Judah. We are going to see that Judah is criticized for adopting pagan methods of disarmament. Later on, by verse 16, they are criticized for allowing the tribe of Kenites to join them and then to assimilate to pagan culture. And then finally, they are going to be criticized for their failure to trust God in the battles in the lowlands as they did in the highlands. So in verse 3, we start off by seeing their alliance with Simeon. Now, Judah and Simeon were The two sons of Jacob and Leah, they were natural and full brothers. So there is a a close tie between these two tribes. Simeon, we also know from the uh, census in Numbers 26, was the smallest of the tribes. And their uh, land allotment was down in this area. Here we have Simeon down in the south. And here is Judah. Another way of looking at it is in... uh, this particular map, this red shaded area down here is Simeon's land and the area above it is, um, is Judah's land. I, I'm, I'm a little disappointed in the way some of these maps outline it because this is a more correct view. According to Joshua, the uh, Simeon's allotment was within the allotment of Judah. So this is a more correct map here, having Simeon's allotment within the tribe of Judah. And so that um, Judah comes along and makes an alliance with Simeon and says, If you help me, I'll help you, and together we can gain control of our our, our territorial allotment. Come up with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you in the territory allotted to you. So Judah went up. There's our word Allah again. It's the Hebrew. So Judah attacked. It indicates they're taking the initiative and they're going on the offensive to annihilate the Canaanites. And the Lord gave. Notice the emphasis there on giving again. It's the Hebrew natan, it's God's grace, and He gives them the victory. It's not dependent upon their might, it's not dependent upon their military skill, it's not dependent upon their technology, it is dependent upon their spiritual condition. Their obedience to the Lord. That is the issue. And so the Lord gives the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. Now, the Perizzites are a different group, uh, a different ethnic group. The term in Hebrew, Perez, uh, it means the, uh, an unwalled city. So apparently the Canaanites lived in walled cities, and these were those who lived in unwalled cities. So they became known as the Perizzites. The Canaanites and Perizzites are given into their hands, and they have a battle at Bezek. Now, Bezek is just north of Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem, and Bezek is up in this area here, and this whole area is, um, this whole area here. Can you see that pen on the, yeah, this whole southern area down here is, is Judah's allotment. And so Bezek is outside of Jerusalem and not very far away, and they have a major battle there. And 10,000 in the armies of the king of Bezek are defeated and wiped out. And they find, verse 5, they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. Now, Adonai is a word for Lord. Bezek is the name of the city, so this would be the mayor or the king of the town, the prince. It's not his name, it's his title. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Now, why do you think they did that? Now, now, those of you who are squeamish, if you're getting squeamish already, you haven't seen anything yet. See, God the Holy Spirit is going to tell us very graphically what actually happens. And so uh, that's a little rough on modern evangelicals who think everything is, is, uh, is couched in some kind of G-rated uh, Disney movie sort of thing. Uh, they cut off his thumbs and toes. And why do you think they did that? It's disarmament. It's very hard to hold a uh, spear or to hold a sword or to run fast if you don't have a, your thumbs or big toes. So it basically takes away his military skill. And verse seven gives us the notice how God gives us his critique of the situation through the mouth of the pagan. Adonai Bezek says, seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. So apparently he had quite a military reputation and he had defeated a number of armies and all of these men were now slaves and they had their toes and thump, big toes and their thumbs cut off and they just ate the scraps from his table. So he says, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their toes were cut off, gathered scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me." Now, he doesn't believe in God, but he's just making a pagan statement that somehow there's there's justice and now it's finally come back and I'm getting what I what I deserve. But what we learn from this, if you read between the lines, and I don't mean there's some sort of special spiritual meaning here, is that it is the Canaanite, it is the pagan Canaanite methodology of disarmament to cut off thumbs and toes. Where does God say to Israel that you are to have this sort of cruel and unusual punishment? He doesn't. God's standard was annihilate him, take his life, kill him, every single one of them. Don't let them alive. Don't keep them alive. Don't just simply disarm them. Kill them. Remove them from the scene completely. So right here we see a hint of Judah's eventual compromise and assimilation. They're already beginning to adopt pagan practices and pagan methodologies operating under an in-justifies-the-means methodology. Then we come down to... Verse 8, to see the next military encounter. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and encountered it. So they moved from Bezek, and they moved to Jerusalem, and they attacked Jerusalem. They strike it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. Now, they don't take control. We learn that, that it's not until David ultimately takes Jerusalem from the Jebusites in Second Samuel and uh, establishes the capital there, so they, uh, they, they aren't able to keep it. They just uh, they just have a have a military victory there. Verse nine. Afterwards, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, and in the Negev, and in the lowland. Now, right here, we see that there has been a shift in terminology. Up to this point, they went up. Now they're going down. And remember, in the topography of Israel. Jerusalem is very the elevation of Jerusalem is very high so you always go up to Jerusalem and if you're going somewhere else you're going down so in Jewish thinking it's very concrete Uh, up and down is not up is not north down is not south as it is in our idiom up is going and it's ascending in elevation and down is descending in elevation so they have had victory in the highlands this is very mountainous country in through here very hilly country and They've had victory there, and now they're going to go down into the lowlands. And we see three geographical areas described here. The hill country, which is this area here, that will include Hebron and Debir, the next two areas that we talk about. And the Negev, which is down here in the south, which is mostly barren desert area. The Negev, and then the lowlands, which is uh, the, the Philistine enclave along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, over in this particular area. So this is going to outline, this is the writer's outline for how he's going to discuss Judah's strategy and tactics. First we're going to look at their victories in the hill country, then the, the Negev, and then the lowlands. So we're moving geographically. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, and we read this in Joshua 15. And they struck Sheshai and Ahiman and Talamai. Now, those are three sons. They describe three little ethnic groups. And they, the Bible always talks about ethnic groups in terms of the father, the, the progenitor of the group. So, they would, if we were to talk today about, in biblical terms, about war going on in, uh, in Israel, we would talk about Jacob fighting Esau. Yeah, yesterday, uh, Esau had a terrorist attack against uh, Judah. In Jerusalem, something along those lines or against Jacob in Jerusalem. We would talk in those kinds of terminology. So you have to understand it that way. And what happens in Hebron, and Hebron is an important city. Hebron is where, uh, right outside of Hebron which was the, cave, uh, the location of the cave of Machpelah, which was where Abraham and Sarah are buried. And later it becomes David's capital city during the first seven years of his reign before he takes Jerusalem and then unites the kingdom. So Hebron has an important place in the history of Israel, and if you were writing this later on, then this would have significance to the Jews. So they take Hebron, and this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Caleb. This is where it properly took place chronologically. And then they're going to move south from Hebron to Debir. And something interesting takes place here, a very fascinating episode. From there, we read in verse 11. Let's read the account and this anecdote, and then we'll come back. This is the second anecdote. The first was about Adonai Bezek. This is the second. Each one of these little little anecdotes gives us a real theological perspective on a theme of the whole book. From there, he went against the inhabitants of Debir. Now, the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer, which means the city of the, of the scribes, probably. It may have been a place where they kept archives or records. Uh, the, and Caleb said, The one who attacks carrieth Safer and captures it, I will even give him my daughter Oksah for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, so he gave him his daughter Aksa, for a wife. Then it came about when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Then she alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev. That's the dowry. She wants something in addition to the dowry. The land of the Negev is the dowry. Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, this doesn't sound like much, but this is a crucial episode in this whole narrative of Judges. It sets up A standard. Othniel and Aksa are set up by the writer as the ideal man and woman in God's plan against whom all other men and women and their relations to one another are evaluated throughout the rest of Judges. Nothing negative. They are presented in a very positive light. There's nothing negative about either one of them. And that is in contrast to everybody else in the book of Judges. So, first of all, you need to be careful when you read this, that you don't, when when Caleb is offering his daughter as a wife, you have to realize that aside from the liberal agenda of Western civilization in the last hundred years, the normal operating procedure was for parents, because they obviously were smarter, they knew their children better, and they understood their strengths and the weaknesses that, and that's the theory, didn't always work out that way, but parents decided who their children would marry. And this is not to diminish OXA uh, at all. This is not some kind of uh, patriarchal agenda. Do not read into this some sort of Western feminist, liberal human viewpoint. Be very careful here. This is going to tell you how God thinks about the roles of the sexes, not how modern man, Thinks the roles of the sexes should work out. In fact, uh, Aksa is viewed here as the ideal woman. What she does is very similar to the standards that Solomon talks about in the thirty-first chapter of Proverbs for the godly woman. She is going. She is. This is a very honorable thing for her because uh, Caleb is saying, "Okay, who's going to be the greatest military hero?" in the tribe, and that's the man I want my, mar- my daughter to marry. She's going to have somebody who can provide for her, somebody who can protect her, somebody that can take care of her. So she is very honored to marry this kind of a man. What we also see here in in terms of Oxa is that when she talks about, she looks at the situation, she understands that, that, um, that uh Othniel has been given a uh, land inheritance down in the Negev, that that's a desert area. So she has her family's interests as her priorities. It's not her personal agenda, her interests, her career that is the priority. It is the family, and she has a long-range view of the family in terms of sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, and future generations. So she has a long-range view of what the priorities are. Now, this section here is a direct quote from the book of Joshua, this whole episode. Now, why is it, we ask, does the writer pull in this quote from Joshua? It is to set up the standard against which all later uh, male-female relationships are going to be evaluated in the book of Judges. Aksa becomes the role model of the virtuous woman. Notice her values here. She shows initiative. She sees a situation, a problem, that there's something lacking, and she comes up with a solution. She shows intelligence. She understands the geography, the agricultural needs, and she's thinking in terms of the long-range advantages to her family. She shows deference and respect for authority. She does not, uh, when she comes to her father and she gets off uh, of the donkey, she's showing respect for him. She... um, shows poise in the situation. She doesn't get carried away by emotion. She is showing clear, objective thought. She is well-mannered. This is something parents ought to drill into their kids, is good manners. She knows how to handle herself in a crisis, and she puts her family's interests ahead of her own. In terms of Othniel, who is the the nephew of Caleb, I I call Caleb sort of the Jewish dog-soldier, Those of you who know history, one of the Cheyenne war tribes were called the dog soldiers. Caleb is Hebrew for dog, so he's the Jewish dog soldier. He's a great warrior. His nephew, Othniel, Othniel, is presented as the ideal model of what a man should be like. He is the warrior who goes forth in the power and the promises of Yahweh to do battle for the nation and to accomplish his God-given mission. He has no doubts. He doesn't question God. He relies exclusively on the promise of God, and he shows initiative and leadership. He doesn't worry about the obstacles. He worries. He is concerned about the God who overcomes the obstacles. Now, when we look at this whole episode, there's a couple of things we ought to note. First of all, everyone involved, the father, Caleb, the daughter, Aksa, the husband, Othniel, the son-in-law, and all of their relationships demonstrate boldness, respect for authority, respect for one another. They understand their biblical roles in terms of leadership and response and help and assistance. Uh, Aksa is fulfilling her role as a woman to assist the man. She is going to improve his lot. they show good manners. They show initiative. See, this is the picture of ideal culture. This is why men should always show deference and respect to their wives. You husbands ought to be, you wives, when you go out to your cars after church, don't open the door. You stand there. That husband of yours ought to be showing you deference and respect and holding that door open for you. And you ought to be teaching your children that. I've heard many mothers teach their teenage daughters, when you go out on a date, you stand there, that man doesn't open the door, or that date, that boy, then you don't ever want to go out with them again. You will never go out with them again, because ultimately, if they can't show that level of respect, then the potential of abuse is present. And this is exactly what we're going to see in the thematic structure of Judges, is that from this point on, men become feminized. We'll look at Barak. And he was supposed to go into battle. Deborah comes and says, God's given you victory. Go defeat the enemy. Barak says, I won't go unless you go with me. See, he is compared negatively to Othniel who goes forth and the power and the promises of oxide. So the women have to stand in the gap. They become masculinized. What happens is, as in, in relation to this, is that instead of women being treated with respect and honor and deference, as we have at the beginning in Judges 1, by the time you get to the end of the book, women are abused. Women are treated with very little respect. And you see that this is the example of a paganized culture. There are role reversals. Men are no longer the leaders. Women have to stand in the gap. And one of the consequences and one of the things that goes along with this is there is an increased abuse. There is less respect and honor treated between men and women. There is marital breakdown. There is family breakdown. And there is social breakdown. All of that is on the basis of these relaxed standards from the Word of God. This is why good manners are so important. You're not just teaching them something that's some cultural, uh, cultural concept. It is to teach honor and respect for people. So as parents, you need to be drilling that into your kids and you need to be mirroring that and making that an example in your lives between the husband and the wife so that they can see that uh, lived out in front of them. Now, we go down through the chapter, we get past this, and we see another episode in verse 16. The descendants of the Kenite. Now, these were not Jews. They are descendants of Moses' father-in-law. They're a sub-tribe of the Midianites. They come up from the city of Palms, and they're going to unite with Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is south of Arad. And they went and lived with the people. So instead of conquering the Canaanites... A rod is located down here in this area southwest of Debir and Beersheba, and they live with them. There is now coexistence with the enemy instead of, of destroying the enemy. And then in verse 17, Judah went with Simeon and his brother. They struck the Canaanites living in Zephath and utterly destroyed it, so the name of the city was called Hormah. Now, <clears throat> why is this significant? I mean, you, you, this is, there's so much data here. When the Jews were standing outside the land at, at uh, uh, Kadesh Barnea. And the the, tri- the the spies went in, they came back, and the people said, No, we won't do it, we're afraid. And then God said, Okay, well then you won't enter the land. Then they changed their mind and said, Okay, God, we will go in. And Moses said, No, it's too late now. If you try to go in now, you'll be defeated. Well, they went in, and where were they defeated? They were defeated at Hormah. So now, the only place where you see uh, Judah carry out the full command of God in terms of holy war, is at Hormah. What? Why? Revenge motivation. See, they're not doing it anywhere else. The only place they do it is in Hormah. And so, once again, the writer, you've got to understand what's going on in the biblical text and in Jewish history, or you're going to miss the emphasis. Then, again and again, they're beginning to compromise their values with the human viewpoint. And the result is, now the Lord was with... Verse 19, now the Lord was with Judah... They took possession of the hill country. So we see that even in spite of our partial disobedience, there's still grace, and God still gives us some victory, but not the whole thing. And the last half of 19, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. See, they weren't trusting God. Earlier, it doesn't matter what that enemy has. Joshua and Caleb said it doesn't matter how many giants there are, how many walled cities, what their technology is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And now, because they are, they are compromising their, their trust in the Lord, they are, only have incomplete victory. Verse 20, Then they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had promised. He drove out from there the sons of Anach. But the sons of Benjamin... Now, Benjamin is just north of Jerusalem in this area. This is their tribal allotment here. The sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So there's coexistence. They're letting human viewpoint and divine viewpoint live co-equally in their thinking. That's, that's the idea here. And the result is that it just gets worse. The rest of the chapter is a rehearsal of Israel's failures. Joshua goes up against Bethel. And here, I don't, have, I don't want to take the time to go into it, uh, a detailed analysis, but the point, there's a lot of irony here. See, what happens is they go up and they send spies like they did with Joshua at Jericho, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, but this man's not a believer like Rahab was. Saw so a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. Now, the English totally blows the translation there. The Hebrew for treating kindly is chesed the Hebrew word for loyal, faithful, covenant love. And so what we see here is the writer is using a certain amount of of sarcasm and irony in order to emphasize the failure of Israel. In the first half of the chapter, Israel is the agent of God's justice against the Canaanites and Israel is the object of God's faithful love. From this point on, the Canaanites become the object of Israel's covenant love, and they're not supposed to make any covenants with with the Canaanites. And the Canaanites then in turn become the instruments of God's divine discipline on Israel. So there's this complete shift that takes place at this point. And then we see the, the, the consequences of their compromise from verse 27 on. Just notice how it reads, verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession. See, they've gone from coexistence to failure. Manasseh did not take possession, and the last phrase of that verse, so the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. And instead of killing the Canaanites, they make them slaves, so there's further and further disobedience to God. Verse 29, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron. So the Canaanites, the last part of verse 30, so the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. So there's coexistence with the, the, pagan, the pagans in the culture. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Um, verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Verse 34, we see the failure. See, there's been compromise, then there's coexistence and Partial failure, And then there is defeat in verse 34 to 36. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Harris, in Ajalon, in Shaabim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. So the writer has given us an analysis of what happened starting in the south and moving north. And it also follows a theological progression of most, mostly obedience to partial obedience to complete disobedience and consequent failure. And the lesson for us is, unless we are willing to follow God's plans, God's procedures, God's promises completely 100% to the letter, then the end result is always going to be failure and catastrophe and disaster in our lives because we will never have everything that God has promised us and has already given us because in our volition we have not been 100% positive to Bible doctrine and God's Word. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this study this morning in your Word. We thank you for what we have learned, the challenge that we have to uh, be... 100% 100% positive to your word To to let your word drive out All human viewpoint thinking From our souls Father we thank you for what we see here In terms of grace That you have already given us everything And it came at the cross And that at salvation We have everything we need For life and godliness Now Father we just pray that If there is anyone here this morning Without faith, without hope, without eternal life That you would make the gospel clear to them And they would make that most important decision Of their eternal destiny to trust Christ alone for their salvation. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.